on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may well, hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, sorry, I haven't uploaded in a while. I have been dealing with, uh, well, just Chinese New Year is all it was. So I was on vacation for three weeks, but now I'm ready to get back into um, recording episodes. And um, currently we're looking at Mark Twain's The Innocence Abroad. So this is going to be the second episode on a will be a five-part series on this travel book, uh, Twain's first breakout book uh, written um, after the Civil War, um, published in in 1969. Um, and then when we're done with that, we're going to be looking at Roughing It, which was published three years later, and it deals with his travels and life out in the West uh, in, the, in the years like during the Civil War. So the theme I've been focusing on with Innocence Abroad, I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to kind of continue to hit this theme because I do think it's, it's really, for me, the most conspicuous theme. And that is kind of the banality and the artificiality of tourism and the, the lack of an aura. It's actually, if you've read like Mechanical Reproduction essay by Walter Benjamin, he talks about the aura of the real, right? Um, and that's what happens when you have mechanical reproduction of of texts and images and pictures is the original then becomes valuable because it has a certain aura to it that the duplicates don't. And there might be some truth to that, but I think Mark Twain pokes a lot of holes into it when he's constantly unimpressed with what he sees or what he's heard. So a lot of this is about like the myth and reality of of what's foreign and what's different and what's elevated as the great achievements of civilization. Mark Twain often comes away kind of feeling awkward or absurd about it. And the most interesting aspects of the book are not his accounting of those events, but his, his riffs on them, his riffs on, or his accounting of these, not, not events, but the things he sees. But more interesting is like the riffing he has on them. Um, so in the first part, uh, we talked about the the trout like the like the voyage it was like this it was kind of an important one right it was so important they met this r uh we'll see in a future episode probably the next one but it was this big steamship tour by americans around, around the world in um europe and the near east north africa <clears throat> and clemens came along mark twain came along as like a correspondent for newspapers um but other people, it was basically a, a tour, like the travel of the of the rich. I talked a little bit about the class structure of the of the book in the in the last episode. I won't repeat that so much because it's not as important in this part of the book. But we in the last episode we looked at the the, sh the voyage itself, and then it uh, travels to Europe, sometime in France, and that's kind of where we pick up with it. Oh, some North African stuff too. Tangiers they were in Gibraltar, and then they ended up in France in Paris. And that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to have a few uh, chapters exploring uh, Paris. And then we go on into Italy. <clears throat> so he's going to spend a lot of time in Italy. And, and that makes sense. The, the 
tourists would have been very interested in, lar largely because there were many Christians. So there was an interest in Rome, interest in the religious art of the Renaissance. Um, and so Mark Twain's kind of this hanging on with these Christians, observing these things, seeing it through his own eyes, his more cynical eyes. Um, and the question is, is what's true? Is Twain's kind of cynical approach more true than maybe the authentic religious experience that the, the, the other tourists have? I'm not sure about that, but I'm on side Twain in, in most of this because that's kind of how I feel about tourism. Maybe it's just how some people do dig the tours. My sister likes those. So I don't know, um, but the, that's the theme I think is really most conspicuous here. And we see a lot of evidence of it, I, I, I think. So he starts out at the chapter, this is chapter 14 in the book, where he's exploring, um, first it's Notre Dame and then the Louvre, so he's in Paris. And it's like seeing the required sites. That's how it comes off. It's like, oh, these are the places we must see. And he actually talks about it in this chapter as an obligation, saying, um, where is it? We visited the Louvre at a time when we had no silk purchases in view and looked at its mouths of paintings by the old masters. Some of them were beautiful, but at the same time, they carried such evidence about them of the cringing spirit of those men that we found small pleasure in examining them. Their nauseous adulation of princely patrons was more prominent in me and chained my attention more surely than the charms of color and expression which are claimed to be in the pictures. Gratitude for kindness as well, but it seems to me that some of those artists carried it so far that it ceased to be gratitude and became worship, end quote. And then he talks specifically about Rubens. And I and didn't Rubens have like this multi-frame, multi-painting celebration of like uh, Catherine de' Medici or something. I think I looked at that when I studied art history. This, um, but I think in here is this idea like this is, this is the important stuff. It's just a bunch of kings. And yeah, it's, we don't really dig it. And maybe that's a cultural thing in part. Maybe that's, you know, when I look up what people say about this book, they tend to emphasize the American versus the European or the American versus the foreign. And I think that's part of it. But also there's just this kind of lack of um, catharsis or resolution in the visits. It's just like, oh, that's that. Even with the David, it's Mark Twain's attitude sort of, oh, that's there. Here's this interesting thing that happened to me at the at the at, at the at the hotel with soap or or something. It's like he the tangents where the real humor of the book is also betray a, a bit of ennui about the things they're supposed to see. Um, but anyways, and, and we only get like two or three paragraphs about the Louvre which you'd think there'd be more, but it's not really what's primarily key maintaining his interest. He's more interested in like the story of Abelard and Eloise and, and when he's looking at like French culture. All right, next. Oh, next he goes to the National Burial Ground. This is where he talks about the story of Abelard and Eloise and retells it. I'm not going to retell it myself. He does a really good job of retelling the story in his humorous way. Um, but... Here, he gets a little bit into this contrast between the American and the French attitudes. Um, and he, here he's thinking about this, this, this kind of national cemetery where there's all these kings. And of course, Americans don't have kings. And he says, imagine a poor Frenchman ignorantly intruding upon a public rostrum sacred to some six penny dignitary in America. The police would scare him to death, fist 
with the storm of their elegant blasphemy and then pull him to pieces getting him away from there we are measurably superior to the french in some things but they are immensely our betters in others and quote referring to their their celebrations of the dead i suppose but here's what he says about paris in the very next next sentence paragraph he says enough of paris for the present we have done our whole duty by it we have seen the tuileries the napoleon column the Madeleine, the wonders of wonders of the tomb of Napoleon, all the great churches and museums, libraries, imperial palaces, and sculptures and picture galleries, the Pantheon, Jardin de Pont, the opera, the circus, the legislative body, the billiard rooms, the barbers, and the Greeks. Um, so he just lists, oh, we saw all the things we're supposed to see. We checked the box. You know, we checked the, we, we, you know, it's almost like he has this uh, list of everything you must see in Paris. And are you seeing the real Paris when you do that? I don't know. Now there's windows where we get like a little bit more commentary on it. But again, I just feel that there's a, a bit of a dead end with this, uh, with, with tourism. Because it's a whole artificial experience, I guess. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, all right. Next, they go to Versailles and... And here was a contrast between like the old Versailles and the new streets of Paris and where he gets into. So he talks about something that most of you probably know something about. And that's the the remaking of Paris during the reign of Napoleon III, which would, he would have been in power. This is before the Franco-Prussian War. And, you know, part, now there's different interpretations about why he did this. So one, like I think David Harvey gets into this is it was really there was excess kind of capital surplus that had to be spent. So they went into urban renewal. Um, and I think there's good reasons to think that's part of the story because governments still do that. I mean, when, you know, it's like a place, an easy place to invest excess capital that needs to go somewhere. If you're not going to put into productive enterprises, if the market's saturated, but you still have profits, where can you go and extract more wealth from? Extract more value. And it's like, well, rebuild the cities, right? Take the old buildings, build new ones. Take the old streets, build new ones. And of course, government funds a lot of that. So it's a, a state capitalist kind of uh, alliance in redirecting capital to get spent, right? Um, it, it's a way of averting capitalist crises. I think that's what David Harvey says in his book, Rebel Cities. That's one explanation. Another is that it was really to disempower the radicals of Paris and stop the revolutions because part of the goal was to make straight streets to prevent the barricades from coming up as they did during the various revolutions and early late in the 18th and early 19th century France. So um, after this, they get back on the boat and um, head to to Italy. So their trip is basically they go to Genoa, Milan, uh, Lake Como, uh, Venice, Florence, and then to Rome. And we're not going to get through all those sites, and I'm actually not going to dwell too much on this chapter by chapter. But that's that's kind of where they they had, and that takes us to about to page two hundred of of the book. Um, now, of course, this is going to be a major focus of the trip for the American tourists because it is mostly religious pilgrims um, going to Europe. So this leads Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, to reflect on things like relics and religious culture, especially in Genoa, where he uh, is able to kind of ridicule and comment on the, the wonderful uh, 
wealth, if you will, in relics, right? He makes the old joke of that, I think, Voltaire made or someone like that, that there's all the different fragments of the true cross that you could rebuild the, uh, the cross a hundred times or, you know, all the bones of the saints and things. He makes those kinds of jokes, which are a little derivative, I suppose. I think they were well known in the Enlightenment when uh, there's the ridicule of, of this relic culture back there, even maybe in the Protestant Re Reformation. Yeah, the way he spins it is he says, but isn't this relic matter a little overdone? We find a piece of the true cross in every old church we go into and some of the nails that held it together. I would not like to be positive, but I think we have seen as much as a keg of these nails. Then there's a crown of thorns. They have one part in Saint-Chapelle in Paris and another part also in Notre Dame. As for the bones of Saint Denis, I feel certain we have seen enough of them to duplicate him if necessary. Um, but still, he's, he seems somewhat interested in the, the rituals and pomposity of, of these cathedrals and some of the gender, uh, like the single gender spaces of, of the church. He doesn't have like a real systematic critique here. It's just, uh, um, you know, it is a tourist account. He is just kind of running through and observing things. But uh, you can see sparks of like, that's interesting, but you kind of wish like, you know, spend more time doing that. Don't do the checklist. Don't just do the checklist of things you must see. Go and really dig deeper into uh, some of these aspects of it. But he forces us to, he gives us the experience that he's having, which is one of being sort of rushed through these spaces. That's what we feel a lot in Italy here is that we're just going from city to city, just, just whiffing the air. We get off the, we, we get off the train we kind of smell around and then we get back on the train and go to the next place. Um, we got a couple chapters set in Milan and here's a great section where he comments on uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, which of course is in Milan. And here he really ridicules the the painting, essentially. He just doesn't think it's that good. Um, or he thinks, or he thinks, or more so, he thinks the people who say it's so beautiful and elegant and flawless are f kind of full of themselves and not being fully honest. It's like, that's what you're supposed to say when you see The Last Supper. You know, if anyone goes to The Last Supper and says, well, that's that idiot just painted on the wall. He didn't do a true uh, fresco and uh, it's kind of lazily done. And the forced perspective is not the forced perspective. The linear perspective is just really obvious. You're not supposed to say that stuff. Um, and so he's sitting here listening to all these people talk about how wonderful the painting is. And he writes, I only envy these people. I envy them their honest admiration, if it be honest. Their delight, if they feel delight. I harbor no animosity towards any of them, but at the same time, the thought will intrude itself upon me. How can they see what is not visible? What would you think of a man who looked at some decayed, blind, toothless, pockmarked Cleopatra and said, what matchless beauty, what soul, what expression? What would you think of a man who gazed upon a dingy, foggy sunset and said, what sublimity, what feeling, what richness of color? Um, and of course, at this time, the Last Supper was very, very degraded. I know there's been restoration since that haven't really done much to help it, but it's because it's not a true fresco, right? It was just painted essentially on the wall. And so it decayed very quickly. But he's really emphasizing that it's not that impressive. Um, he says, we can imagine the beauty that was once in the aged face. We can imagine the forest if we see the stumps. But we cannot absolutely see these things when they're not there. 
I'm willing to believe that the eye of a practiced artist can rest upon the Last Supper and renew a luster where only a hint of it is left. Supply a tint that has faded away, restore expression that is gone, patch and color and add to the dull canvas until at last its figures shall stand before them, aglow with the life, the feeling, the freshness, yea, with all the noble beauty that was theirs when first they came from the hand of the master. But I cannot work this miracle. Can those other uninspired visitors do it? Or are they only happily imagine that they do? So this is a real passage that gets to the, the, the falsehood of the tourist experience or the the conventionality like of people just not just going where they're supposed to go, but saying what they're supposed to say at these sites. It's, it's really, you feel his kind of frustration with it. And of course, this is a special case because I think in the 1860s, the Last Supper was in really, really bad shape. It was later restorations that basically repainted quite a lot of it. But, but yeah, I, I feel him here. You know, I've been on trips where people are just like overawed with the beauty of a place that I just don't see it. Um, anyways, let me know what you think about this. Oh, then he goes to Lake Como, and it's the same kind of thing with Lake Como. This is the great, beautiful lake you're supposed to uh, visit when you go to Italy. And here's where he famously says Lake Como is not really as good as Lake Tahoe. And we'll see about his time in Lake Tahoe and in Roughing It, which now it's hard in that book to differentiate the what's real and what's not. This book, it seems he's much more just telling it like it is. I don't see much exaggeration here. There's a whole lot of it in Roughing It. Roughing It is a lot funner book that way. Uh, a lot more exciting to read and a lot more interesting. In my view, anyways, because I'm kind of with him. I'm like, Europe, eh, I guess I'll go <laughs> if everyone else is going <laughs> and you're paying me. Um, he says, like, they're both like lakes surrounded by mountains. But he writes, I've always had an idea that Como was a vast basin of water like Tahoe shut in by great mountains. Well, the border of huge mountains is here, but the lake itself is not a basin. It's as crooked as any brook. And only from one quarter to two thirds as wide as the Mississippi. There's not a yard of low ground on either side of it. Nothing but endless chains of mountains that spring abruptly from the water's edge, and tower to altitudes varying from a thousand to two thousand feet. Their craggy sides are clothed with vegetation, and white specks of houses peep out from the luxuriant foliage everywhere. They are even perched upon jutting and picturesque pinnacles a thousand feet above your head. Um, and he says, really, what makes Lake Como beautiful are the houses and gardens that people have built there, not the lake itself, which is kind of a, 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 a not much more than a river, actually. Um, so that's that's kind of a famous passage in the book. Um, ah, then on to Venice. Uh, he's got a couple chapters on Venice. Um, and again, he, he, he can't help but comment on the tourist experience itself, writing, the venerable mother's republic of republics is scarce a fit subject for flippant speech or the idle gossiping of tourists. It seems a sort of sacrilege to disturb the glamour of old romance that pictures us to her softly from afar as though as through a dinted, tainted mist and curtains her ruin and her desolation from her view. One ought indeed to turn away from her rags, her poverty and her humiliation, and think of her only as she was when she sunk the fleets of Charlemagne, when she humbled Frederick Barbarossa or waved a victorious banner 
above the battlements of Constantinople. The point being, of course, is like it can never live up today to what we imagine and what we we imagine when we read the stories about the grandeur of Venice. And I read a lot of history, obviously, and you know I, I think there's probably something to that. Um, I mean, it's not that I don't like going to other places. I like living in other places. Like I love living in Hangzhou. Um, I, my my feelings about Taipei vary, but still, more or less, I. I don't think I'd like to visit Taipei. Like I'm, I think I'm flying my dad in. I don't quite know what to do with him. Go to other parts of Taiwan, I suppose, where at least there's some scenery. But I kind of am anxious about what to do about it uh, on that trip. But living in a place, getting to know it, working in the work, you, that allows you to actually comment on it. There's another reason I sort of like roughing it a little bit more is because roughing it, even though it is a travel log of sorts, it's much more about his life and work. He was, he was working and living in Nevada. Until the end of the book, it sort of becomes a travel log again. When he goes to Honolulu or Hawaii, but most of it is just about his life in a place. Um, but anyways, um, he then gets into uh, life in Venice a little bit, the Venetian gondola. Again, the thing you have to see, right? The, checking the list of, of what, where you have to go. And he says, we've been everywhere in the gondola. Well, where you, by everywhere, you're, he really means like, I've seen all the things we're supposed to see. I've seen all the sights. Now, he does have a little bit of fun with the term Renaissance. It is um, where he kind of plays up assumptions and, and prejudices about American ignorance. Um, saying like, oh, we didn't know the Renaissance was a person or something like that. And then we learned then that Renaissance was not a man, that Renaissance was the term to signify what was at best but an imperfect rejuvenation of art. The guide said that after Titian's time and the time of the other great names we had grown so familiar with, high art declined. Then it uh, partially rose again and inferior sort of painters sprang up and these shabby paintings were, in the work, were at the works of their hands. Then I said in my heart that I wished to goodness high art had declined 500 years sooner. The Renaissance pictures suit me very well, though suits to say at school were too much given to painting real men and did not indulge enough in martyrs. So he's even ready to kind of say, eh, eh, to uh, the Renaissance itself. But, of course, it's going to be like pimped by the people of, of, of Florence, the people of Venice, who are, you know, it's what they're proud of, right? But he can't see it. It's, yeah, I, I think there's something about like looking like a little bit through the glass darkly uh, in this, uh, with these uh, experience of tourists. Maybe that's the wrong metaphor. It's more like, uh, I guess there's a veil between the tourist and the people who live there. I suppose. And the people who live there see something in it that the tourist, um, an honest tourist, is going to be sort of baffled at. And and even if they've been told it's great, in per, you know, it's like the Mona Lisa being this, this small thing when you finally see it. Of course, most paintings are bigger in person than when you, you really see them. But sometimes you have this image of them being greater or something more amazing than, than they are when you see them in person. And it's got to be worse now, I mean, where it's not, it's not so much this, the painting you're seeing, it's you're struggling through a crowd of, of a million people cramming in to get their photo 
taking with with some something. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, do we have the is he dead part? There's a really funny back and forth here where um, um, again, kind of he plays on this presumption of American ignorance about things where you know the guy is talking about these different paintings and the Americans would say like well is he dead <laughs> to the and then the, the Italian guy gets kind of flustered at that it's, it's kind of a running joke in this part of the book but I, I think it's I think it comes up when they're in, in Rome so um, does he talk about the David and what does he say about the David we should find that out anyways it doesn't really matter um, so the next episode, I will uh, dig a little bit deeper into this book. We'll look at uh, basically the Rome to Constantinople to maybe Russia is where we go. So we're kind of getting into the Asian part of the of the tour, the Asian and North African part of the tour. They kind of swing around the Holy Land and then come back to I think Cairo is maybe the last stop we get. So they they touch into Africa at the end, but. Um, you know, after going to Rome, they, they travel to Constantinople and then to Crimea and, and then to the Holy Land. So we're kind of getting about halfway through this tour. And um, yeah, we'll see what more I can say. So obviously, I'm going to be continue to talk about this overall theme that I'm getting out of this book. But I'm sure there's many other ways this book has been read and couldn't be read. So let me know what you think. Give me your own thoughts about it. Um, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and I will try to catch up on my recordings. So uh, there's, uh, I won't be have any delay in the future if I get busy. I'm going to try to record as much as I can now. So I'll, I'll have some in the can for you. Same thing with the Robert A. Heinlein podcast, which is going concurrently with this series on Mark Twain. So anyways, uh, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends